0: Have you ever considered sharing your skills and witnessing your faith in a global setting? Lay Mission Helpers sends Catholic professionals to serve in Africa and Latin America in the fields of education, healthcare, IT, accounting, and more. Find out how you can be part of this life-changing opportunity by visiting laymissionhelpers.org or send an email to program at laymissionhelpers.org.
1: Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. Hello, Jesuitical world. It's good to be with you. I am Zach Davis, one of your co-hosts. I'm entering the show solo today, but don't worry, you're going to hear Ashley's voice. Very soon. We've got a special show today. It's Halloween weekend coming up. I don't know when your town does the trick or treating, but I've been eating candy all month. So I'll be passing out next Monday. But we figured since Halloween's coming up, we do a kind of spooky show. And we've got a really, really great guest coming up for you this week. We're talking to Candida Moss, who is the Edward Cadbury Professor of Theology at the University of Birmingham. And she's also a columnist for The Daily Beast, writes a really, really interesting and fantastic religion column for them. She's the award-winning author of seven books, including Divine Bodies, Resurrecting Perfection in the New Testament, and Early Christianity. So we brought Candida on to talk to her about the afterlife, hell, demons, Satan— What Catholics believe about burial practices, what Catholics believe about exorcisms, what Catholics believe about hell and how that's changed throughout the church's life. So fascinating conversation, a little spooky. Uh, Fast forward through some parts if you need to. And Candida recommended a great drink for us. It's a little summery for fall right now, but it's an unnaturally warm day in New York. So we're we're going with it. I've got a great Moscow mule and uh, don't let me drink alone. So if you're somewhere where you're not operating heavy machinery, go ahead and pour yourself a drink uh, and stick around for the rest of this episode. But you're going to want to stick around for the end of the show, because instead of Signs of the Times this week, we've got a really special treat for you. As you probably know, Midterms, they're just around the corner. They're November 8th. Um, and obviously the Catholic vote, um, young people voting, th- these are these are hugely important demographics. Um, and America has this great podcast called Voting Catholic. And you m- might remember this. Uh, it's looking at the key voting issues ahead of an election from a Catholic perspective. We launched it back in 2020, ahead of the presidential election, and was a really huge hit. You know, I heard from people that said, like, uh, most Catholic election stuff I see is, like, super toxic and polarizing, and this is this is not, not that at all. Um, it's hosted by our producer, Sebastian Gomes, so um, he does a really excellent job digging into some issues, and it's back with an all-new second season ahead of the midterms. It's not really trying to tell you how to vote one way or another, it's trying to complicate the issues I- in a healthy way, by looking at how they impact real people some of the issues they're looking at in season two. One, inflation, what Catholics need to know before voting. Two, guns, asking the question if Americans have turned guns into religious idols. And three, abortion, asking what does a just and moral law look like in a post-Roe America. We're going to drop the first episode on inflation at the end of our Jesuitical episode today. So just stay tuned after our interview with Candida Moss. And if you'd like it, then make sure you hop over wherever you're listening to this show and subscribe to the Voting Catholic feed. You'll be able to listen to all three episodes from this season and also go back if you're interested and look at some of the things we, we were talking about ahead of the presidential election in 2020. But for now, make sure you stick around and enjoy our conversation with Candida Moss.
2: Joining us from another part of Manhattan is Candida Moss. Candida is the Edward Cadbury Professor of Theology at the University of Birmingham and a columnist at the Daily Beast. She is the award-winning author of seven books, including Divine Bodies, Resurrecting Perfection in the New Testament, and Early Christianity. Welcome to Jesuitical, Candida. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Thanks for being here. There's there's a ton of stuff we could talk to you about, but we figured since this is Halloween week, for all intents and purposes, this is going to be our Halloween episode. Um, so we want to get a little a, a little spooky, kind of lean into you know dead bodies, uh, hell, those Same. those sorts of things. <laughs> um, if, if if you're game,
3: I am always game to talk about hell.
1: Awesome. Great. Um, Maybe a good place to start here um, is with the early church. Could you just briefly lay out what what they believed about the afterlife? Because I imagine that this this resurrection thing would have come as a bit of a shock and, and a change to their belief system.
3: Yeah. So just the idea of resurrecting dead bodies, and this is really apparent to us at this time of year, to people in the ancient world, that generally sounded very strange. I mean, you are talking about zombies. Why would you want to resurrect bodies that are clearly decaying? It's one of the hardest parts of Christianity to swallow. And so when people say, oh, Christians must have made this up, I'm always like, no, this sounds terrible to most people.
1: It's actually how I justify all the other stuff. I'm like, well, at the end of the day, I believe a guy rose from the dead. So the rest, yeah, just you can throw the rest in for sure. Because it's it's all easier after that.
3: I mean, like that water into wine thing is like not a problem. (laughs) Um, And Christians work really hard to say, well, you know, when Jesus is resurrected from the dead, it's the same body. He's healing. It's not like a substitute. And he's not a ghost. You can't put your hand through him. And at the time, there were lots of people in the ancient world who knew about kind of supernatural entities from what we would call vampires to what we would call zombies or werewolves. Like, there's a lot out there in the ether and in your local graveyard. And so when resurrection comes along, it's a big surprise <laughs> to people in antiquity that anyone would want to believe this. Wouldn't you prefer to be a spirit? Doesn't that mm-hmm. sound better? And as Christians think about this, they think it's very important that you have your body because if you're like a great person, if you're a martyr, let's say, don't you want the same body that was faithful, that did all of this great stuff, that suffered for Christ, don't you want that body to be rewarded? Like if you get another one, that sort of feels a little unfair to the first one. And at the same time, if you're a bad person, then it's that body that should be punished in hell. And so once you have that like first initial sort of confessional creedal statement that we believe in the resurrection of the body, then the question is, once you get resurrected at the end of time, what's gonna happen to it? And as early Christians start to think about this, they think in terms of, well, good bodies will be rewarded. They'll go to heaven. There's like this amazing buffet there. <laughs> um, forever. Um, there's great music. It's relaxing. But these bad bodies, they're going to go somewhere else to basically subterranean prisons. And there they're going to be punished.
2: Yeah, I want to stick with the bad bodies for, for a second. So, what was the um, so this was happening? It was in a Jewish context. So, what was the, the Jewish belief about hell or shoal? And then, how did Christians appropriate and change that?
3: Yeah. So in in the Hebrew Bible, what um, Christians call the Old Testament, there are references to Sheol. And it's just this sort of shady place underneath the ground that's miserable for everyone. And initially, everyone goes there. And it's a place... Good or um, bad,
1: right? It's not a... Yeah,
3: good or bad. Just like everyone goes there. and, And it's a place where you're separated from God and it's awful. And there's really no reward. There are a couple of special people who just get snatched up somewhere, but we don't know where. And over time, by the time we get to the sort of second century BC, Judaism has had a lot of contact um, with Greek society and Greek mythology in particular. So those stories of Hades and the underworld that you probably learned about in school or you watched in a Disney movie somewhere. Judaism learns about that. And so they start to flesh out their own understanding of sort of punishment. And we start to get visionary experiences from Judaism where they talk about good people becoming stars in heaven and bad people being put in these kind of caves or holding pens, waiting for the end of time when God will judge them. So Jews are developing a whole sort of panoply of ideas about what this punishment will look like. And they, when they're thinking about, well, what will the punishment be like? They essentially think it will be like punishment now. So if you commit arson, you'll be set on fire. It's sort of <laughs> this kind of measure for measure, eye for an eye logic. And Christianity comes along. And if you've read the Gospel of Matthew, and if you're a Catholic, you've definitely read the Gospel of Matthew. Um, you know about Gehenna, this place of sulfur and fire and where we know the the worm never sleeps whatever that is and you get lots of references to that there's this terrible place sometimes outer darkness it's sometimes um in the gospel of luke it's hades but we don't have like really vivid pictures of it yet but it's in the early church so sort of from the second century onwards that christians really start to speculate hell gets a lot bigger a lot more complicated and you have the birth of this like huge multiplying tradition about what will the punishments be? What crimes will you be punished for? What does hell look like? What's its architecture and what are the worst sins in the eyes of God? And yeah, if you've ever not paid attention in church, these are not texts you want to read because that's a pretty serious crime.
1: Now it, is is hell always is it always been used as sort of like to dictate behavior in in this life in the sense that like it is it is punishment for bad things done here, at least for Christianity? Has is it, is it always had that sort of relationship?
3: Yeah, I, I think so. There's a scholar called Megan Henning who's written some amazing books about this, about hell as punishment. And one of the things that she talks about is how in the early church, say, if you're living in 4th century Antioch, and you're lucky enough to hear John Chrysostom, the golden-mouthed preacher of Antioch, and, and the bishop there, if you heard him preach. His philosophy was when you get children or catechumens, you tell them about hell. You tell them how awful it is. You tell them what trouble they're in already because you're in trouble.
1: That is still a strategy employed in, in, in American Christianity, I think.
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do. <laughs> um, went to Sunday school and went through catechism. And, you know, it's it's terrible. And then once you once you're terrified, then they say, but we have good news. Let me tell you about Christ and how He's going to save you from all of this, and then you're going to be a good person. So it's not just that it's educational; it's the first step of education, and from there, it's sort of like it's only going to get better.
1: I guess that's good to lead with and just like get that out of like I don't. It's a, it, I don't know if it's a sales tactic or an evangelization tactic, but that it, it seems to have like shifted at some point. Where at least today, I feel like in the best Catholic circles, we don't really. I don't know, try to use it as a scare tactic as much, right? They Like there's a, this idea that like, it's good to love God because you fear hell, but it's better to love God out of just like pure love of God.
3: Absolutely. And that was always the case. Um, but if you, I think the strategy in antiquity was, well, yeah, that would be better. And we can work on building love of God, but let's just start with fear. Um, <laughs> if that's more effective, we'll do it. And yes, I think now it's sort of frowned upon to tell small children that they're going to hell if they steal Halloween candy or something. But we still do use the idea of hell. And there's a pretty sort of fierce debate among different denominations of Christianity today about whether we should drop the fire and brimstone, whether that's important if you want to keep people on the right track, and whether or not we have gotten the description of hell incorrect. Maybe it's not actual bodily torture, maybe it's psychic torture instead. What's your take? I mean, personally, and, you know, bear in mind, I'm a professor, so I'm obviously one of those fluffy liberal academics that doesn't think about economics and just wants to help people. Um, I tend to think that eternal torture is incompatible with the idea of a just and loving God. So this is sort of a well-worn theme, but the idea that a deity would see people punished in this way for eternity seems to me just, I, that's thats not, to me, the God of the New Testament.
2: All right. So let's shift from uh, hell to to the personification of hell, uh, Satan, the devil, the deceiver. Can you talk to us a bit about how that idea or person has evolved in, in the thought of Christianity?
3: Yeah. So this is just like quite the professional glow up. Satan <laughs> starts out as like being thrown into hell as a rebellious angel. Um, he's not known as Satan there. He's known just as the devil. And he's an inmate in hell, in the bottommost layers of hell for disobedience to God, which is really the sort of grounding sin from which all the other little sins um, sort of populate themselves. And so there he is as an inmate, but at a certain juncture in the medieval period, people decide that they're a little uncomfortable with the idea that God himself is in charge of hell and that the tortures there are being administered by God's angels. And so you have this shift that now hell is the domain of Satan and um it's demons and devils that administer torture because presumably They like it. But that was a shift. That was a really big shift. And the work that it does for us as Christians is it allows us to divorce God, the sort of God of justice and love, from the horrors of hell. Um, And of course, it has led to all kinds of sort of pop culture moves from like the TV show Lucifer um, to everything else. We now have like a very different vision of hell. He's sort of lost the horns and the red skin and the sort of anti-Semitic traits that he used to have and now he's just a very attractive man in a suit.
1: That shift in the medieval period, is that? Is there something going on in the culture at that time that sort of pushes that or is this from on high? Is,
2: is it Dante's pronounce- fault? <laughs> <laughs> it
3: It is partly Dante's fault. It, it is amazing how important Dante is for everything that we think about heaven and hell and judgment today especially when so many of the sins that he has in his um, Inferno are really just very specific references to people he doesn't like in his own day. <laughs> so, so, petty. so petty. It Really, it is like his enemies list from school. And um, we have taken that and used it to describe all of hell. So it's partly Dante, and it's partly that whenever you go through periods of extreme sort of social pressure, whether it's war, whether it's a pandemic like we're going through, people think um, a lot more deeply and closely about ideas like eternal punishment and torture and God punishing them for bad things in this way. And it's at those moments that people really want to shy away um, from language about hell or horror movies or this kind of apocalyptic imagery. People don't like it when they're suffering. They like it when they're powerful.
2: So you say we're talking less about a torturous hell, but Pope Francis does talk a lot about the devil and this idea that you said that Dante brings to us of the, the devil coming out of hell and into our world. Um, and, and, you know influencing us and sowing discord um so what, what have you made of pope francis's uh kind of rhetorical tactics in this regard
3: yeah i guess so full disclosure i took the vatican's exorcism course like not to become an exorcist because of course women can't be exorcists but i did go to their course which is open to people you do need to apply um you need like, a letter from your priest there you know obviously you hear a lot about satan there or demons and how people get possessed But just as a um, theology professor and New Testament scholar, it's very hard to read the New Testament and say, well, (laughs) that's just hokey. Because I mean you might think it's hokey, but it's there, right? It's there. Um, Satan is a, a is a really important part of Christian tradition, of scripture of how we think about the world. And it might make people who live in the 21st century in Manhattan uncomfortable to think about Satan. But but that is a part of the tradition. And when I was at the Vatican's exorcism course, sometimes I would hear things um, that I thought were, wow. you know. So there was a case that they were describing of a four-year-old man who was possessed by Satan and the only symptom he had, well, I'm gonna say one, because the other one's a little X-rated, but the only symptom he had that he was possessed by Satan was doubts about God. And I thought, wow, this this could be more common than you think. But I think Francis is right to talk about the devil. I think where we have to be careful is about demonizing groups of people or other religious traditions or even individuals. Because once you demonize someone, like none of us are going to negotiate with Satan. That's not a good idea. That never turns out well. Um, so I think we should be able to talk about devil and, uh, the devil and evil in the world, as Francis does, which I think is important, um, without saying these people, and it's not that Francis does this, it's that people do this, And sure. um, without saying these people are associated with Satan, because that always leads to violence against those people yeah. and a lack of basic Christian compassion.
1: And it very much connects to, like, Francis's idea that the devil is one that separates and, and divides, you know, rather than uh, brings together. W- Want to just go back to the little factoid that you just dropped, that you went to the Vatican's exorcist school? I know. <laughs> could, you, uh, could you just paint a picture of me? Like, what happens there? How long? Is this, like, an eight-week course uh, on a resort somewhere? or What's, <laughs> like,
3: what's that a look resort. like? Um, a <laughs> resort. Uh, <laughs> More people would go. Um, so it's actually sort of a five day course. It's mostly attended by priests. It's run by the Legionaries of Christ at one of the Pontifical Institutes in Rome. And you apply and you go, and there are speakers. There are sort of a series of lectures on various aspects of demonic possession, from its history to its mechanics um, to individual cases. And it's mostly Catholic priests, but also ministers from other denominations of Christianity who want to know about this because they don't come from denominations that do this. And you do hear testimonies from Catholic priests who are exorcists, and they are striking. And there are actually some doctors there too, because they are the ones who encounter people you know, most people who are experiencing psychic distress don't show up at their priest first, they go to their doctor. And um, so there were some psychiatrists there, there were some pediatricians there, which was a little disturbing. And they talk about the ways in which you can get possessed and what the signs of possession are. And I think just to dispel a myth, no exorcist will just come to your door and perform an exorcism in order for an exorcist to even look at you in sort of a formal, official way, you have to go to a psychiatrist first. And this is where I think Satan really has some loopholes, because a psychiatrist has to say there's no psychiatric explanation for your conditions. And depending on the psychiatrist, they may not be open to the idea of demonic interference. So it does seem as if there are all kinds of ways out for Satan or one of the demons. Um, And then the only... Three certain signs of possession are knowledge of information you couldn't have known, an ability to fly, and knowledge of languages that you've never learned. All of which sounds kind of amazing. Um, right? Like, do <laughs> you imagine
1: They're like superpowers is what you're saying. They I, are
2: I, literal superpowers. Well, it's funny though, um, when you
1: when you mention them, I can't I can't like shake you know, exorcism movies from them. So as you're reading them off, I'm like shivering. I, but yeah. I guess no, you are right objectively. Yeah, those are Things we covet in other contexts.
2: Well, I'm also so we I generally have been of the mind that it's best not to get too curious about things demonic because it is a Definitely way that, so don't I, so, so I'm curious at this, you know, uh school for exorcisms that seems like a place where demons might be tempted to uh latch on to people's morbid curiosity. Did you feel anything there?
3: Um, well, you know, I, I asked the question, I think everyone would ask in that situation, which was, if I was possessed by a demon and didn't know it, were like, is that possible? And they said, yes, that is possible, but we would know. And I was like, oh, thank goodness. And then my other impression was, I think the same as yours, Ashley, it became very clear to me that as a layperson, you would not want to address Satan yourself. Like, don't try and perform an exorcism. Ask for the help of saints and angels, which is what you're supposed to do. Um, a prayer of intercession, it's called, because like you really don't want the eye of Sauron to turn and look at you. You know, that's that's not a good idea. Um, so, but there were a whole bunch of practices that I thought, oh wow. So things that, that according to the exorcist could lead you to become um possessed by a demon it's it's a broad range of things from you know participating in actual witchcraft right no offense to practicing wiccans to reading your horoscope to reading harry potter books um i couldn't get clarity on whether just watching the movies was bad (laughs) but um which is what i had done or even practicing yoga and i was like oh I thought that was exercise. Um, and, you know, so there's a whole range of ways in which we might be opening ourselves up to possession. And that was a little scary, I have to say, because I had already done so many of those things. Mm. Well,
1: you mentioned we shouldn't look too far into it. So I'm going to I'm going to transition us out of this out of that topic. And maybe we could talk a little bit about um Dead bodies again and burials today. Um, uh, <laughs> wondering if you could clarify the the Catholic teaching on on cremation. Finally, because you mentioned we talked into the beginning of this interview about the importance of the physical body in the afterlife. In mm-hmm. um, today, it's sort of like my understanding is that cremation is
3: tolerated
1: but not encouraged.
3: Cremation is tolerated and actually fairly in. Now, I'm going to say in the last 15 years, um, the Vatican has stated that more strongly. Now, one of the reasons they said that is when cremation was frowned upon, it was for several select historical reasons. One was when Romans executed Christians, sometimes they would cremate them and throw away the ashes. So Christians couldn't bury them because Romans mistakenly thought that if they cremated the bodies, then there would be no hope for the resurrection. They didn't quite understand that, like, obviously, that's not how resurrection works. Um, And then also the USSR, um, the Soviet Union, um, which was an atheist regime, uh, decided to enforce cremation in order to sort of, for the same reason, to sort of dampen religious sentiment. And so that was another reason. And so I think some of the church's resistance to cremation has been related to those historical moments when those who are opposed to Christianity were trying to harm Christianity by enforcing cremation. Now it's fine. The reason why the church seems to be easing up on cremation is precisely because now we see new atheistic burial practices that people have so some people like to have um, some of their genetic matter put on actual spaceships they really just like satellites and send out into space because they had like a real star trek thing when they were young other people want to turn their relatives ashes into diamonds which is a thing you can do and wear them and other people are, and you see this especially um among tech moguls want to be cryogenically frozen so that science can resurrect them one day. That isn't exactly atheistic. That is a religious conviction. It's just that you believe in science um, over a a deity, right? And so the context in which the Vatican was like, really, cremation's fine, but please don't go do these things, which speak to a sort of um, a rejection of God's power, a rejection of the natural order, and a desire to seek immortality in ways that are sort of personally hubristic, at the expense of other human beings and at the expense of the kind of eternal life that the church and God offers you.
2: The church also, it, so cremation is okay, but we still can't scatter ashes. And I'm wondering wh- why that is. So I can see a a believing Christian who's like, I loved this forest and I want my ashes scattered there. And they I don't think they see that as like an atheistic rejection of God. So what what's the what's the hang up with even even a practice like that? I think again it's it's about a kind of like secular tilt
3: um in the in the dispersal of ashes. So one thing that would happen once you start doing that um would be maybe you send some to space, maybe you turn some into a diamond, maybe you you know, it's um, a slippery that slope. The same, is that the? Yeah it's, a, okay. yeah, it's a slippery slope. And I would say you can um, inter ashes. So my family is like an old Catholic family. So we have a crypt. <laughs> um, it's kind of run out of space. So now everyone gets cremated and buried in the like garden next to it because this is not the space. So there is like a a practical angle to this too. But as someone who's like studied the resurrection of the body, it's very clear from very early on that um, cremation or whatever happens to your body after you die is no impediment. To resurrection the problem is choosing practices that are on this kind of slippery slope towards hedging your bets between god and science
2: and it's having like a, a single physical place where people can go and pray part of it because you know like i think of we just went to saint peter's basilica which is built upon <laughs> the tiny little grave that saint peter was buried and evolved into this thing so is is Just the idea of having a place where you can go and pray, a a part of why this is so important?
3: Yeah. So Christians have been gathering in Christian graveyards to remember their dead. They used to celebrate the Eucharist there. Um, They had altars. Don't panic. But also come together, not just as like families or individuals communing um, with the memory of their loved ones, but as like communities of Christians, um, they've been doing that since the very beginning. And that was a really important sort of religious and social space and also a kind of important psychological experience for people. Grief is, is really hard. I think the problem now is um, when people move very far away from home, they sort of want to take some of the ashes with them, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and, you know, personally, that, that's pretty hard for me too as someone who doesn't live near her mother's grave.
1: Sure. A lot of younger people now are looking at the question from an environmental standpoint of of composting human remains. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, is the church going to see that as like sort of like pantheistic um, and that we're like going back into the earth? Or or, or is there a chance that there's like a laudato si type of energy towards that and could be something that the church could get on board with?
3: Yeah. So that's a really interesting question because the sort of compost model does resonate very strongly with... um, members of new religious movements and Wiccans in particular. Um, I'm sure you've seen like the trees, like you get buried in a particular sack and a a tree grows Mm -hmm. out of it. Um, And I think it's quite beautiful. It's going to be interesting to see how much the sort of association with pantheistic religion sort of weighs against this. But I'd say for those concerned about environmental effects, there's nothing to prevent you burying your loved one in a cardboard box you know, um, like those heavy wooden coffins take a really long time to break down. Um, I'm not suggesting you like start planting tomatoes immediately, especially not if you're on like holy ground, but I think that that would be something that in the spirit of Laudato Si, in the spirit of Francis's, um, the energy he's been directing towards environmentalism and God's creation. I think that that certainly will be something that people can get behind
2: all right well this has been a wonderful if a bit spooky discussion so thank you we do it's been
3: fun and morbid
2: yeah (laughs) (laughs) we do have one final more uplifting question for you uh which we ask all of our guests which is if you could canonize one person living or dead Catholic, dead. (laughs) catholic or not uh fictional or real who would it be and why
3: I'm always bad at these, like, only one what's your favorite book questions, because I'm I'm always like, well, is it my favorite book? Um, it might just be that I've been thinking about him. I want to say Eusebius of Caesarean. Um, He was the author of the first church history, just called Church History, bold title, um, that has patterned every church history written by Catholics or Protestants ever since. He was also the person who's responsible for how we read the Gospels. He also wrote the first, maybe only, biography of the Emperor Constantine written from within an ecclesiastical context. He was the Bishop of Caesarea and is responsible for so many of the things that we think and do today in religious contexts. and yet is not a saint. So I feel that he got passed over.
1: All right. Well, this is a great plug for where we can leave this conversation because he's the latest subject of your column at the Daily Beast. Is that right?
3: That is right. Yeah.
1: OK, so people want to learn more about Eusebius. Uh, they can read you there. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
4: Boston College School of Theology and Ministry is committed to the intersection between theology, culture, and contemporary questions, preparing leaders who are equipped to serve the church and the world through diverse career paths.
2: Generous financial aid is available. Learn more at bc.edu.
5: stm At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible
1: I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Candida Moss. Now stick around for the first episode of an all new season of Voting Catholic from America Media. And then make sure you look for it wherever you're listening to Jesuitical and subscribe. And don't forget to vote and make sure that you check out americamagazine.org for all kinds of great political coverage ahead of the midterms and beyond.
4: My name is Catherine Orr and I'm the pastoral associate at Lumen Christi Parish, uh, which is in the Archdiocese of Milwaukee. My husband, Matt, and I have been married for nine and a half years, and together we've got three kids, James, who's seven and in second grade, Madeline, who's five and in kindergarten, and then Daniel, who's nine months old, and he's in daycare.
0: And tell me what a typical day in the Orr family looks like with all of the (laughs) craziness.
4: With all the craziness. um, Be careful what you wish for. So... Um, my husband, Matt, uh, he is a superintendent for a large construction company. So he wakes up around four o'clock in the morning and then is like fully out the door by five around that time. That's like when my alarm's going off to try and get up and get ready before the kids have to get up by six. And then to get three kids, you know, up, dressed, fed, (laughs) ready to get out the door. Um, we need to be leaving by seven and then we drop the baby off at daycare, and then I drop the kids off at school. And thankfully, the kids go to the parish school um, right next door to where I work. So I drop them off, and then I'm at my desk within five minutes. I usually leave here then around three o'clock to get in the car pickup line to pick up the two older kids from school, and then just kind of reverse it to pick up the baby from daycare. And then it's just the after-school routine of starting homework, getting dinner going. Um, usually around that time, my husband gets home from work, which is great. Um, he'll get cleaned up, and then depending on if I have an evening meeting back at the parish, we kind of tag team, and then I head out um, to do the evening meeting. And from there, it's if I can get back in ho- back home in time for bedtime, I'll you know step in then. If not, um, at that point, it's just making sure that lunches and everything's made to start all over for the next day. And if I've got some energy left, I'll take an hour to try and do some of my own homework because of the master's program I'm in.
0: Now, you live in uh, a, like a rural part of the country, in rural Wisconsin. How does that impact like your day-to-day and how much travel you need to do?
4: So... Um, we live in a, a really small rural town um, with about 500 people in it. And it's 30 minutes north of where I I work at the parish. And um, it's about equal distance for my husband who he travels to work sites all over the state. But usually he's within an hour and a half drive for him. But I can be anywhere in the car for like an hour to hour a day to up to three.
0: So you guys have two cars in the family. Yes. And you need two cars to, to just live the lives that you live.
4: Absolutely. Matt travels quite a bit for work um, and he does construction. So his vehicle is a work vehicle. It He's hard on vehicles too, um, just because he's hauling drywall and tools and all of that. But we definitely, we have to have two, just given his job and where we're at, um, it's just it wouldn't be feasible to, to have a one-vehicle household. So I notice inflation the most with regard to gas prices just by virtue of how much I'm driving back and forth to work, school, for school for the kids and school for myself. You know, the drive to my work and the kids' school, like I said earlier, like it works when it works, but if one of the kids gets sick or if they have a doctor's appointment, it doubles the amount of driving I'm doing back and forth. I mean, I easily fill up my gas tank twice a week, sometimes more than that. Um, and when you're looking at gas prices super close to $4 a gallon by us, um, that's almost and close to $1,000 a month on gas. So for me, that was like the biggest sticker shock. Um, but as like as a family too, I mean, Food prices—that is something for inflation that has really impacted like our family. I would say we are so ordinary <laughs> and normal in the sense that I think that most middle-class families would probably resonate with something I'm saying, or at least I hope so. Uh, you know, I think most families, and ourselves included, just we want to work hard. We want to have a little bit of fun on the side, so we're not just only working. We want to try and instill values into our kids of you don't need to have a lot of things or spend a lot of money to have a fruitful and full life. But at the same time, there are times when you want to be able to just have a little treat and things like that. But at the same time, how do you then plan for that and budget for that in a way that isn't going to uh, jeopardize you know, just things that we also really prioritize financially, like sending the kids to Catholic school, or um, you know, living in a in a house that you know is secure and stable in an area that is safe. You know, I think if it was just me several years ago and I was living by myself and I could live within my own means and I did, I wasn't responsible for dependents, it wouldn't have been a top priority. Um, but now it is, and I, I feel like a lot of families are probably thinking along those same lines, too. Okay, one fifty-seven fifty-three.
2: I got groceries for one person. So I got
0: uh, chips, candy, bread. And it used to be five, $5.20, five now it's $7.10. So I'm just looking at the
1: prices for eggs right now.
2: Just came to fill up my gas. And it is $3.49 a gallon.
0: That's about $2 more than it was a year, a year and a half ago. From the cost of gas to electricity to my favorite pretzel snacks, inflation is hammering Americans' pocketbooks in 2022.
4: That report last week was a stunner. I mean, 8.3% inflation. I mean, you've got got the average American paying 13.5% grocery inflation in this country.
0: At a 40-year high, it's no wonder that inflation and the economy are polling as the top voting issues ahead of the midterm elections.
3: Well, Republicans want to be laser-focused on the economy and inflation because that is, of course, the biggest vulnerability for Democrats running. We know that midterms are usually a referendum on the party in power, and in this case, the Democrats control everything.
0: So what does Catholic social teaching have to say about inflation at this critical moment? And what moral and economic questions should Catholic voters be asking of the incumbent Democrats and the Republicans looking to shift the balance of power in Congress? From America Media, I'm Sebastian Gomes, and this is Voting Catholic, a podcast about what's at stake in the 2022 midterm elections from the people who know the issues best and bring their faith to the voting booth. In this episode, I'm speaking with Tony Annette, an economist and Gabelli Fellow at Fordham University and the author of *Cathonomics*, How Catholic Tradition Can Create a More Just Economy. I began my conversation with Tony by asking him how we got to this point.
5: Well, as you said, inflation is the highest it's been in 40 years. It's floating between 8 and 9%. And, you know, at a very simple level, economists often say inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. So let's look at both sides of that. There's too much money and too few goods. Um, Some people argue that the American Rescue Plan Act, which is President Biden's uh, fiscal stimulus when he came into office in 2021. And that was in response to
0: the the COVID pandemic, right? To try to alleviate some of the suffering from that.
5: Yes, uh, it had some very excellent policies like the child tax credit, it had their $1,400 checks to qualifying households. But some economists argue that there was too much stimulus, in a sense there was too much money delivered. People had too much money, which meant they spent a lot, which means prices rose. Now, that's one reason why inflation is high, but it's actually not the main reason. I think estimates suggest that maybe maybe three percentage points of current inflation is due to that, but the rest... The 5 to 6% is due to the supply side. It's due to the too few goods. And that's because of a number of factors. It's because as we came out of the COVID crisis, a lot of people switched from spending on services because restaurants and hotels were closed and everybody was locked down. So they started buying a lot of goods like furniture and Peloton bikes. And you got into what's called these snarled supply chains. The supply wasn't able to keep up fast enough. So the prices rose and you see like massive rises, for example, in shipping costs, especially in supply chains from Asia. Uh, A second factor on the supply side is the fallout from Putin's war in Ukraine that has led to spiraling energy prices. It's led to high food prices and food and energy tend to be concentrated in the baskets of the poor, especially. So that's kind of my bird's eye view as where we are on inflation today.
0: So what I'm hearing is that there's a lot of different factors at play. So is it safe to say that there's no one person or no one politician or no one party that's responsible for getting us here?
5: No, that's right. I think, you know, we're mainly talking about supply side issues. So the real culprit, the real villain here is COVID. There's actually quite limits to what politicians can do to get inflation down. That's why it's really the job of central banks. It's the job of the Federal Reserve. And they do that by raising short-term interest rates to kind of curb demand. There are things that politicians can do. For example, if you have a major fiscal stimulus, like massive tax cuts or something like that, which actually adds fuel to the fire of inflation.
0: How so? And when I hear about tax cuts, I often think about the Republican Party's platform more than the Democrat Party
5: platform. Is that correct? That's probably correct. The Republican Party platform is based heavily on tax cuts, but tax cuts for upper incomes, for the rich. And, you know, they have this trickle-down philosophy which says that if you cut taxes for the rich, then they will create more jobs and the poor will benefit. The problem with that philosophy empirically hasn't panned out. It's been tried many times since the 1980s, and it hasn't actually had the benefits that has been promised. What it does do is contribute to aggregate demand, though. This is actually what's happening in Great Britain right now. The new government came in, implemented massive tax cuts, which is really complicating the ability of the Bank of England to curb inflation and is leading to financial problems for the British economy.
0: What about the Democratic Party platform? What did they plan to do? What are they promising to do to try to
5: solve this issue uh, after the midterms? Well, the Democratic Party platform is heavily based on expanding the social safety net. Uh, For example, it didn't pass, but President Biden's American Families Plan um, included things like making the child tax credit more permanent, giving paid parental leave, universal pre-K, things pro-family issues to kind of uh, expand the social safety net. But um, that will not be inflationary because it's supposed to be offset by increased taxes on upper incomes and corporations. So the Democratic plans at the moment don't have any inflationary impact. There is a debate as to whether President Biden's student tax relief contribute to inflation, because that was not paid for by higher taxes elsewhere.
0: So we're talking about two very different policy approaches to tackling a very complicated issue. Um, Let's look now at what the church actually says about the economy, and what principles from the Catholic tradition inform the Catholic approach to economic questions. It's interesting that, you know, when you look at the conversations about policy in, in Catholic circles, I'm always struck by how people's faith leads them to conclude very different things, right? So we have Catholic politicians who are proponents of unrestricted capitalism, you know, trickle down economic theory, as you mentioned. Um, And then we, at the same time, we have Catholic politicians who are democratic socialists, you know, and everything kind of in between and outside of those two positions as well. So let's just talk basics here. What are the fundamental principles of the Catholic faith that should inform Our economic ideas?
5: I think we have to focus on the centrality of the common good over individual self-interest. And there, there are two very basic principles that really inform what policymakers should do from a Catholic perspective. And that's one, the universal destination of goods, which says that the goods of the earth and human labor, in a sense, belong to the whole of humanity. And that while private ownership is valid, Uh, the church does not support collectivism or communism. While private ownership is valid, that must always be subordinated to what Pope John Paul called the social mortgage. So it's what Pope Francis calls a secondary natural right, not the primary natural right. Uh, On a policy perspective, that has a lot of implications. It has impacts on uh, just wages, on redistribution, on how we treat migrants and refugees, On a whole host of issues, the Universal Destinations of Good comes into play. I think there's also a role for business. Business also needs to align its activities with the common good. The Catholic Church has also been very clear about that. It cannot be just about maximizing profits, about maximizing your return to your shareholders. You also have a responsibility to your workers. You have a responsibility to protect the environment You have a responsibility to broader society and given all these problems we are facing today in our economy we need all hands on deck we need the government to play a role but we also need business to play a role and support the common good and that's heavily related to a second principle which is the preferential option for the poor which from a policy perspective says we need to judge all policies first and foremost For how they affect the least among us and you know with inflation that's especially important because as we know when inflation is being driven by especially high food and high energy costs that constitutes a large share of the budgets of the poorest people in the country
0: a big question for a lot of people is about wages there's a big movement in the united states to increase minimum wage that's been around for a long time but a living wage, what would be considered a living wage, doesn't go as far in a context when inflation is as high as it is. So from a Catholic perspective, what should we be thinking about when it comes to policy around questions of a living wage, minimum wage, the wages that middle class and lower income class Americans are making?
5: Yes, uh, that's a good question. Um, So a just wage or a living wage is central to Catholic social teaching. Popes have been talking about that since Leo XIII and Rerum Novarum. Um, I would argue in the United States, wages, real wages, have been stagnating for about 40 years now. Wages have not kept up with rising productivity. After the Second World War from the 1940s to the 1970s, wages rose with productivity. So you had this immense period of economic growth, and workers really benefited. But from the 1980s, things changed. You had soaring corporate profits and stagnating real wages. So that meant that the gains of economic growth went to the owners of capital uh, and corporations rather than workers. And for Catholic social teaching, that would be regarded as an injustice. Now, how to fix that? Obviously, raising the minimum wage is one solution because the federal minimum wage has been stagnating for decades. It's shockingly low. And we in America, we rely so much on an economy which has so much suffering from some of the poorest people. They get miserable, poor wages, poor working conditions, little autonomy over how they work, no paid leave no sick leave. Um, We rely on so much suffering uh, to get cheap stuff, and that's morally wrong, I would argue. Now, Catholic social teaching is actually quite radical here. It goes way beyond raising minimum wages, but it promotes such things as profit sharing and workplace democracy, that's workers having a share in how companies are managed as they are in Germany, for example. So yeah, there's a lot that Catholic teaching, Catholic social teaching has to say on wages and uh, justice for workers.
0: So apply that to to the midterm elections. Obviously, uh, Catholic Americans who are going to be voting are, are voting in very different contexts, right? Very different state situations. Um, so h- how does this apply? If you're going to take these Catholic principles that we've discussed, the preferential option for the poor, the common good, this concern about employment, connecting the dots between these very complicated matters. um, What should Catholics be looking for in, in the politicians that are on the ballot?
5: I think they should be looking for politicians who have an encompassing view of the common good, who are not wedded to free markets, because Catholic social teaching argues that, you know, you have twin rocks of shipwreck, just as kind of collectivism, communism is wrong. So libertarianism or free market ideology also leads to bad outcomes. So politicians that kind of take a sensible middle um, uses the power of the government to cushion people from bad economic effects. So for example, what policies are being proposed to shelter the poor from continued high inflation? What policies are being proposed to keep unemployment low? We should be very happy with the fact that unemployment is at a 40-year low And we want to keep that. We don't want to raise unemployment. And how do you plan on expanding or supporting the social safety net to protect the poor from the adverse effects of a free market economy?
0: Can you explain very basically what this connection between unemployment and inflation is?
5: Sure. So when the Federal Reserve fights inflation, it raises interest rates. Rising interest rates will kind of choke off aggregate demand and make it harder for firms to expand and hire workers and they will lay off a lot of workers. So the risk is if you raise interest rates too much or too quickly, you will lead to rising unemployment. And as I mentioned, some economists have said that getting inflation back down to 2% would lead to 1.5 million people losing their jobs, which would be a human tragedy.
0: So Tony, considering what we've discussed today, what advice would you offer to Catholics who are deeply concerned about inflation, are feeling squeezed in the current economic climate when they're entering the voting booth in November?
5: I think they should realize that inflation and unemployment are two sides of the same coin and to ask what policymakers are proposing, not just for inflation, but for how it affects unemployment. So that's the first thing. Uh, also, second thing, goes back to the preferential option for the poor. First and foremost, what are politicians promising in a, in the way that it would affect the poor? Not the rich, or actually not even the middle class, but the poor must come first. So those are the questions that I think they should be asking as they go about voting.
0: Tony, thank you very much for speaking with me today.
5: Oh, you're welcome. I'm delighted to be here, Sebastian.
0: I want to ask if inflation and the economy more broadly as a voting issue uh, is at the top of your sort of priorities, your, your kind of voting priorities, because we see polls consistently showing that inflation, the economy are the most important issues to the to the majority of Americans.
4: That's a great question, because, you know, prior to this year, I don't think I would have really considered inflation or the economy overall as one of my top priorities I think maybe this this year in particular just because my youngest is nine months old and um, you know three kids with that it definitely has bumped up to I wouldn't say it's the top priority but it's definitely up there and I feel that you know there are indiv- there are individual issues that are important to me as um as an individual citizen, but I also don't want to solely focus on issues that only impact me directly. Like I know that I'm part of a larger community. I'm part of the universal church that cares about issues domestically, but also internationally. So that's something that's, it's really hard to weigh because then it opens up this, this bigger can of worms of all of a sudden your your top priorities include 10 things and how do you weigh all of them
0: it's really easy to look at a situation that's not good so inflation is very very high a lot of people are concerned about the economy and we know because of how the economy works that sometimes it's like years and years and years of economic policy in the making that get us to a particular place right so when it comes to the actual policy and holding people accountable Are you looking at the people in front of you or are you trying to take a longer view and how do you balance that?
4: So I definitely am not an economist and that was one of the classes at school that I definitely struggled with. However, I do know from that is that you do have to play the long game and you have to look at uh, just years worth of, of policy. But at the same time, I think that's when, for me, it's really important to look at Who's in office? What has their voting record been? Because I think it's also, in today's time, it's really easy to, to listen to sound bites and really not get the full picture of a particular piece of legislation. Once you're able to engage in the process like on a year-round basis you'll start to connect the dots yourself. And you'll see that no one person has that much power or no one Congress has all the power to change everything overnight. That these policies, they take years to implement and they take years to feel the ramifications of them, whether positive or negative. So it is important then to engage in the long game on advocacy from a Catholic perspective.
0: What does it mean to vote Catholic? How would you explain that to somebody?
4: That's a great question. I would say to vote Catholic means that you really do have to ground yourself in prayer and your relationship with Christ. Because when you can actually embody the two great commandments of loving God and loving neighbor— then you'll be able to think of all of these issues from a totally different framework. It's not, why do I care about X issue or why do I care about um, this policy? But then it's, why do I care about my neighbor? Why do I care about how these policies impact their lives? And why do I care about how these policies impact my family?
0: Catherine, thanks very much for speaking with me today.
4: Thank you.
5: next
0: time on Voting Catholic.
5: That day I was having a full day gathering with all the priests of the Archdiocese of San Antonio. I received in my phone that two children were killed in a school in Uvalde.
3: We're cutting in to bring you some breaking news. There's reports of an active shooter at
4: Robb Elementary in Uvalde.
5: It's a dangerous theological issue to think that we can supply people with a godly like power or strength if they have
1: this
0: kind of weapon. We explore the devastating plague of gun violence in the United States as a key voting issue for Catholics. For complete coverage of the 2022 midterm elections from America Media, visit americamagazine.org. And while you're there, please consider supporting the production of Voting Catholic by getting a digital subscription. Voting Catholic is a production of America Media, a Jesuit ministry. This episode was written and produced by me and Maggie Van Dorn. Sound design and mixing by Ashley Spillane. With production assistance from Cristobal Spielman, Christopher Parker, and Jillian Rice. Art by Sean Tripoli and Allison Hamilton. Parts of it were recorded in the William J. Loeshert studio at America Media's headquarters in New York City. I'm your host and executive producer, Sebastian Gomes. Thanks for listening.